You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute. We're live, dude. There's, yeah. There you go. Boom. And um, we have an excellent guest today, which I'll introduce in a second. Uh, but this is super, a super relevant conversation for us to have in light of COVID and people talking about things like pandemic pods and micro schools, schools aren't opening. What, what are families to do in a lot of places? Advantaged families are seeking out pods and stuff. Um, but th- there's a new app or new website, at least out called Schoolhouse. Um, and I shared in my Twitter feed, at least the, the link to the website, but it's actually helping parents and families link up with educators uh, to, 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 to seek out educational options that are working for their children right now. Um, so there's a huge demand for this right now. And so I really want to uh, introduce our guest, uh, Joe Connor. He's actually the co-founder and COO of this new uh, organization called Schoolhouse. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us today, Joe. Thanks for having me, Corey. Excited to be here. Yeah, so I gave a quick introduction. Could you give us a, a longer form introduction of you know your interest in education just in general, but then your background, but then also let's, I know our listeners really want to get into what are the details of Schoolhouse and yeah. how can it help families? Absolutely. Um, so I'll start with my background briefly. I started in the public charter school sector. Uh, so worked for several years for KIPP public schools on the East Coast. After a couple of years of doing that, was recruited out to California to open up a new charter school in the Bay Area, uh, working for Rocket Ship Education, which mm-hmm. kind of styled themselves as a KIPP 2.0. So everything they had learned from KIPP, plus kind of some Silicon Valley ethos. And I was in the process of opening up a new school out there in San Jose when I ran into the California buzzsaw of local land use uh, and union politics. So we actually got sued trying to open up the new school, had to have a number of board meetings at the county level, and ultimately were denied the opportunity to open the school. So after a couple of years of teaching, and now I was ready to go into leadership, I figured that if I really wanted to be able to open up new schools, I needed to figure out the legal aspect of it. So ended up pivoting, going to law school for several years. Um, so I was at Notre Dame Law School, uh, continued my education work there. They have a uh, think tank called the Alliance for Catholic Education. So did a lot of work with them in school choice, both on the charter sector and the private school sector. Um, then when graduated, I worked for Alt School, a Silicon Valley startup, helping them figure out their strategy to open up micro schools in 50 states. Um, after working for them for a little bit, ended up working for a law firm where I continued my work and started seeing the writing on the wall that there were more and more uh, money and more and more interest and more and more talent flowing into kind of what people call the micro school sector. Um, Mm -hmm. So really small schools, 10, 20, 30, 40 kids. Uh, And part of it was because parents really didn't have choice in a lot of places. You know, there are obviously charter schools in most states. Uh, Also, some states have private school vouchers and tax credit scholarships and ESAs, but majority are still not well served by the choice sector. And so a lot of people were kind of voting with their feet in their pocketbook and leaving the local public schools and going to these smaller schools. And so for the last couple of years, I helped a number of clients open up 
new small micro schools. And so that's kind of where the idea for Schoolhouse came from, that the most important part of any education that I saw as an educator was the teacher, right? And I think most people kind of know this intuitively, that when you look back on your high school, middle school experience, you know, you're not thinking about the time when your school got new computers, it's usually about like that great teacher, that great math teacher, that great biology teacher, whatever it is. Um, and so we started with that as really kind of the kernel of our idea and then built out the company around it. And so we started and we recruited about 20 teachers across the country to open up their own micro schools. Uh, and so this was in winter of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID struck in March, 2020, all of a sudden we had all these great teachers and they no longer want to open up their own schools because they didn't think it was safe. So at the time we started placing them in people's homes and so we had some of the first learning pods in the entire country open up here in New York City, which is where I'm located and the New York and Northeastern suburbs. And so we had uh, our initial cohort that ran throughout the summer and was super successful. And then we've just been kind of scaling up to meet demand uh, ever since. So what does that look like for uh, a family, like for a teacher? Um, yeah. A teacher gets, because we read about this, right? In the Bay Area, there was a story that came out, I, I want to say it was uh, um, SF Gate put it out. They said something like these families are hiring, they're getting together and they're yeah. saying we can meet at my house. Maybe we rotate through houses. That's okay too, but you can come to my house and this teacher is just going to, what do they call it? Like embed. Uh, okay. I think that was the, so the teacher embeds with these families Um that way they they all know each other. They're all safe. And, and that was from the COVID perspective, right? Like right. We're, we're all going to quarantine together in a sense. Um, and that way we know we have confidence that everyone's safe. How does that look for Schoolhouse? Is that similar? Yeah, great question. So we take uh, all the precautions that we need to based on where the pod is located. So we typically follow the local and state guidance. So it looks a little bit different depending on where we're located and then also follow kind of best practices from the CDC. But generally our pods are small, so it's four to eight kids. Usually they all typically know each other from the same school or maybe their neighbors, parents know each other. And what we have to do as part of our process is make sure everyone's on the same page when it comes to safety. So we work pretty extensively and have what we call pod success managers, work with the parents and the teacher to make sure that everyone's on the same page when it comes to safety. So that looks different in different pods. Some are masks, some are outdoors, uh, some are six feet apart. Um, but basically we're kind of following what, you know, I think everyone is used to at this time. And we're making sure that kind of everyone is on board with the same safety procedures. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's actually one of the most important thing when people are thinking about forming their own learning pods is really making sure that everyone gets a say in what they think the right procedure should be, and then kind of making sure that they're on the same page. And so we typically do that and have a process for doing it, where we actually have everyone fill that out and then kind of sign on the dotted line. Could you give us some examples of, of what teachers have, or what teachers have been saying about this, this setup? Um, yeah the pros and cons, and then also what are families saying? Why, why are families seeking these out right now? Is it a COVID thing? Is it uh, just because they've, they've always liked this model? Right. What, what are you hearing on the ground? 
Yeah, so I mean, from the teacher perspective, uh, teachers generally love it. So on average, our teachers are making about 10 to 20% more than their last job. And they're doing that with a smaller class size. So as I said, <laughs> most of our pods are between four and eight kids. So it's a pretty good deal to be able to get paid more to actually have less students. When I was a teacher in California, I had 36 students. Um, and so many of our pods are kind of, you know, a small fraction of that. And it really allows the teacher to reach each student individually and personalize it in a way that can be really tough if you're talking about a classroom with 20, 25 people. Um, in addition to that, the teachers really like the flexibility. So our pods, since they don't have to follow kind of a centralized district schedule, they can start a little bit later. So we have some pods that start at nine because teachers want to be there in the morning for their kids at breakfast, and then they want to go to work. Um, we also have kind of flexible hours for the teachers so they can end earlier too if they wanted to. Um, and then the other thing that they really value is autonomy. So we have a number of pods uh, in different states, but we don't have a single methodology or ideology, right? So we're not Montessori, we're not Waldorf. Uh, people can kind of pick and choose what they want. And so we have just a number of different providers on the platform. Some are Montessori, some are Waldorf, uh, some are just college prep. We have some that are religious-based. People and the teachers kind of really figure out together jointly what it is they want to teach. And the teachers honestly find that super compelling. And then on the parents' side- Just real quick, uh, just real yeah. quick before you get into the families, I mean, this yeah. kind of reminds me of something we've talked about for the past few months on this podcast is, you know, there were, there were different public school districts, including Denver Public Schools, mm -hmm. issuing formal statements about pandemic pods <laughs> and, and urging them not to hire the public school teachers mm -hmm. as if the public school teachers couldn't figure it out for themselves. And it sounds a lot like what you're saying is that fear is because they start they, the, these school systems in some places are starting to understand that teachers might like this deal. They may, they may see that they're, they can get paid more for a class that's a fraction of the size with a lot more autonomy. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, one thing I think is that teachers generally, unlike other professions, don't have a lot of competition for them, right? So if you're teaching in New York City, what you are making in uh, the Bronx is the same as you're making in Manhattan, is the same as you're making in Queens, it's generally in lockstep with what the union has negotiated. And that's true pretty much across the board. And we really think of teachers, you know, they're not necessarily cogs in a machine. They're more like lawyers or doctors or accountants. It is a demanding, you know, creative profession where one teacher cannot necessarily completely replace another. Each one is different. And so we think that our salary scale actually reflects that. And we pay based on kind of efficacy, um, how much the parents actually like the teacher. All of that goes into it in a way that most districts and other schools don't. Um, so teachers actually really like that because it turns out that you know they want to be treated individually. They don't necessarily generally like oftentimes the salary scale and ladder that, that they get stuck with. Um, but to get to your, your question about what the parents love, I mean, the parents love a lot of the same things that the teachers do. They love the flexibility. So a lot of our parents love the idea that, you know, if they want to take off a certain holiday that they don't have to lobby the district for, right? They can just decide as a small group, 
And I've been on these calls and it seems like such a small thing, but parents love the idea that, you know what, this is actually something that's responsive to me and my family and our needs. And it's not something where we're just kind of an afterthought and decisions are made without us really even being taken into account. So parents love that flexibility. And they also love the small class size. Uh, you know, they love the idea that kids who have been stuck at home now doing remote learning without their peers are now able to safely socialize with, you know, four to five other kids and really have kind of some great peer-to-peer -peer interactions. So this this is interesting. I right now the teachers, I assume, I I don't know this. You can yeah. you can give us some color around this. Sure. Joe. Um, the teachers that are adopting this right now are, you know, when you look at just traditional economic models and marketing models, you, you kind of combine those two, you say these are the early adopters, right? Right. These are the entrepreneurial teachers that are like, hey, maybe I can make a go of it. And mm -hmm. I'm willing to roll the dice, right? I'm going to take that risk. Yep. It'll be interesting to see if though if that can last long enough, so that the the kind of more hesitant group of teachers will say, "Well, there's a there's a big group of teachers out there that have made a lot of money. It's not so risky anymore because it's been around long enough, right? Whatever that is, right. I don't know what long right. enough is, but." Tell us about that, Joe. What, what have you seen? Yeah, absolutely. That was a big part of our recruiting process. Teachers were quite candid. Hey, are you guys going to be around in a year or two years? You know, this is my career. This is important to me. I need to know that. And so we really told them kind of our long-term vision, which is allowing basically anyone, anywhere to open up their own small school. So if that's in, you know, Chelsea in Manhattan, or if that's out in Wyoming. We want to be really the platform and the provider for talented teachers to go and find those families who are looking for a more personalized education. And so um, I think our teachers know that because we've spent so much time with that. And really what we're doing now with our parents is we're trying to roll out that vision to them as well. A lot of parents found us because they had this immediate need you know, their local school district had closed, they were only doing remote, they needed help with childcare, they needed help with education. And so we kind of quickly filled that need. But now, as it seems like COVID, COVID's demise, hopefully, is on the horizon, it seems like more and more parents are actually interested, not just in us as a COVID-19 solution, but us as kind of a long-term solution. And so we're working mm -hmm. with parents for fall 2021. We already have people who have renewed for them, and we're kind of working with them to set up their schools for that year and the following years. Yeah, so so how's demand looking in, in the short run at least uh, for the time being uh, and, and how's that going? And then also, are there any families coming to you and saying, you know, hey, um, I heard of these school choice programs in X, Y, or Z state, is that available? Yeah. Because funding might might be a, a problem for some, for, for some families. Um, yeah, so are you hearing absolutely. Yeah, so demand has been steady throughout the year. I would say typically to kind of most school and education products, we saw a real big spike in demand during the summer, and then one also in December leading up to January. Um, outside of that, there's still kind of a steady demand. And we are seeing, I think, more and more people beginning to make plans for fall 2021. With regards to your question about school choice, we have, I think, created and have found and tapped into this really strong parent 
um, I'd say kind of power, right? One of the things that I learned from my time at charter schools is that honestly, the best advocates are usually the parents and students themselves. And so we are working with our parents to try to figure out how can we support them? And so part of that is, I think, partnering with states. And so we're exploring a number of options in different states. And then also partnering with some philanthropic orgs. Um, and both of those are to make sure that, you know, as we grow and scale as a model, that we can scale and serve people across the income level, not necessarily just those who can afford our um, tuition, but people kind of at all different income levels. Mm -hmm. yeah, it looks like uh, Shauna Anderson in the chat is pointing out how there's there's a lot of there are several states right now that have bills to fund students directly through an education yep. savings account, which could be used for these types of micro schools and pandemic pods. EFI actually has a map that I'll put in the comments as well. I think there's at least 14 states mm -hmm. that have already just this month introduced these types of bills. Some states will be more likely to pass them than others, obviously, right. based on legislative makeup. But that's um, you know, and it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. Oh, and for our listeners, a reminder is this week is actually National School Choice Week. So this is uh, highly relevant uh, right now. So, Joe, we like to ask our, you know, all of our guests, what are some some of the arguments you've heard against uh, against this proposition? Uh, yeah. Are there what what's the main pushback or at least one or two of the points of pushback? And why do you think that that that's yeah. relevant or if it's uh, not a legitimate Concern. Yeah, I mean, what, one big argument, I think, is kind of the equity issue, right? If we're only helping people who have kind of the money and the wherewithal to buy our products, then what about the kind of those left behind? And so I think my answer to that is we have a number of ways we're making sure we serve low income families and communities. The number one way that we're doing right now is actually sliding scale tuitions. So we have a number of pods where parents who can have agreed to pay more so that some students can go for uh, reduced cost or actually completely free. And so we have some of those in New York and DC and Boston. Um, but also I think it's one of the things that kind of longer term, there is a limited pool of people who are willing to do that. So that's where we are trying to explore school choice options, many of which, especially in the private school sector, actually focus on those low income parents. And so we think that, you know, similar to how parents now are used to paying for a number of education options outside of school. We think that one of the things that the pandemic really has changed is that parents for the first time, many of whom just always defaulted to the local school district, are beginning to become kind of consumers in that area, right? They, they were at home with their kids now for nearly a year. They saw what was going on in the school. Some people were fine with that, some people weren't. And so we actually think it's really incumbent upon how these states to actually give that money back to the family so they can make the best decision. Um, you know, a big part of that is that actually families almost presume that the money is there. So one of the interesting things mm -hmm. that came throughout the summer was when I was talking to parents who were signing up, in many cases, they actually assumed that the state um, would step in and pay for their education at some point because you know, their school wasn't open. So why wouldn't the money follow them? Uh, which is kind of, a, a, you know, people know that I think in the choice world, uh, but but for people outside of that, it's kind of this, this novel concept. And we often had to tell them, you know, that's not really an option uh, for most people. And so um, I think a lot of it is just kind of continuing to push on the momentum that was gained through parent advocacy, which has been so strong throughout this pandemic. 
So I, I'm interested. I want to, sorry, I want to go back just a little bit, Joe, to sure. uh, just a couple minutes back. I won't go too far back in the That's conversation. Mind. Just a couple minutes. <laughs> so we were talking about teachers and early adopters. Right. I, I think uh, maybe now I would be interested to hear how you pitch teachers on yeah. this because you know, I mean, obviously it's not going to be a fit for everybody, right? So you right. don't want to hard sell the techers and be like, no, you really should be doing this. Be Look, I mean, I, if you want to do it, great. And here's why you should do it. How do you get people that you're like, man, I know that you would be a fantastic teacher for a schoolhouse. And yeah. I get that you're, the risk is uh, is there. I can't make it go away. But here's the pitch. Like, what yeah. what is that? How do you talk to a teacher like that? Yeah, honestly, we, we think a lot about it in terms of incentives, right? So if they're going to take on this risk, we also want them to take on some reward. And so part of what we do actually is have them uh, allowed to increase their earnings if they add new students. Um, so we actually just had someone add, I think, three new students. And as a result, they saw their salary go up, um, I think, about by 6K. So... Part of this is, right, if you're willing to come with us, you're willing to take on some of that risk, we want to reward you. And although it's, once again, like a novel idea of kind of paying teachers more for, um, you know, better performance and, and teaching more kids, that has actually been kind of a compelling prospect for many of our early teachers who I think, as you said, Matt, are quite entrepreneurial, right? These are people who, um, you know, we have people with masters and PhDs and people who have uh, second career as teachers, right? So they're coming from the sales world or the financial world. And so they are, I think, maybe more used to kind of some of that yeah. uh, risk and upside. That yeah, and sense. I mean, in the traditional system for listeners that who aren't aware of how the uh, traditional public school system typically works is you get paid just based on, mostly just based on how long you've been sitting in the system, regardless of right. how well you do. And so it looks like schoolhouses, especially um, beneficial for the teachers who feel like they're they're not being rewarded in the p traditional public school system for doing a really good job. And you mentioned earlier, Joe, that it's kind of based on, you know, the, the feedback from the parents and reviews right. and, and their effectiveness, which, you know, I think that's a, a perfect incentive structure, not perfect, but a better incentive structure right. than, mm -hmm. than what we have currently. Yeah. Uh, another th kind of theme I wanted to hit on here is you know what? What are some of the benefits that that are you know that are hard to attain in the traditional one size fits all system that you see that's more likely to happen in a home based setting or this kind of micro school setting? I mean, there's 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 yeah. obvious differences between the factory model and this kind of one on one model. What are the main kind of uh, benefits there for families? Yeah, I, I would say one is just that individual attention, right? So what we've seen is that um, parents are super impressed with how quickly our teachers can move through the material um, and kind of cover everything that they need to for, say, kindergarten um, when the class size is so small. So we actually had um, a kindergarten pod finish everything that they needed to know according you know, to the state. Uh, by the end of December. So they're moving on to the first grade curriculum already, um, which is really I exciting. Don't for the I don't believe it for a second, Joe. It's impossible. You're glossing right, right, over right. stuff. Yeah. No, and it is. I mean, it's honestly one of those things where it's just like when you get rid of, you know, all of the transitions and recess and lunch and all of those other things yeah. that I think people take just as gospel, right, that they have to be a part of the school day. It's really exciting what the pods can accomplish. So I'd say that's one thing. 
And then the other one is that, you know, parents um, are not just kind of a monolith. And I think oftentimes the schools treat them like that, right? Basically, public schools kind of presume that there is one, you know, student uh, that kind of exists throughout the school. And that's like the single person that they're teaching towards when, you know, any educator knows, right? There, there are people kind of below or above that student. There are people who have, you know, maybe engineering interests or maybe they have artistic interests. And so what we are really able to do is have our teacher figure out what those deep interests and passions are of our students and really kind of go for it. So we actually had a pod that had a little bit of an entrepreneurial bent and they started their own energy drink company and started selling energy drinks to their neighbors, um, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. And that was something that it was a group of like fifth grade boys and that's really what they wanted to do. And they were super excited and, you know, they still do it today and, and love talking about it. So. That's, That's cool. super interesting that you can kind yeah. of adapt and create your own model uh, specific to each individual student and, and learning uh, pod. Um, hey, but but you know, Joe, a lot of people say, um, you know, these big factory schools are are awesome because you get all this positive socialization that can occur in the public schools, where mm -hmm. these small communities you're not going to get socialization. So what is what is your response? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, I think parents had a similar concern uh, before they started with us. And then once they started with us, I, I think that kind of became more of an academic concern, to be honest. The reality is in a class of 30, your student is not going to be, you know, have very close relationships with all 30 parents. And I think that's true for the parents too. So typically what results is people do what they always do, which is group kind of according to, to how they want it. And so our pods, in some sense, are those kind of small groups that, you know, if I don't know, there's there's a bunch of boys and they play basketball, right? All the parents kind of know each other and all the, the boys hang out together. We have those groups kind of across the spectrum. Right. And I think the other thing is also that there is a need for socialization, but it's not necessarily accomplished by having large class sizes. I think socialization can be important you know, for, for, for certain uh, activities and certain subjects. But for the average learning um, situation, I think generally we know that, you know, smaller is better when it comes to that because you get more personalized and individualized instruction. And so we have socialization that can happen across pods. And certainly post-pandemic, we think a lot more of that will. But parents and students are typically very happy with their small uh, group of, you know, six kids. Well, and, and, you know, a lot of that, what gets lost in that framing coming from the other side is that there are positive forms of socialization, but there are negative forms mm -hmm. of socialization as well. And if you're getting lost in this big school system, it's more likely that you're going to get caught up in a lot of the negative forms of socialization that I actually experienced in, in my public schools in middle yeah. school. I mean, there's the gang activity, drug activity. Um, I didn't partake in the drugs or the gangs, but it was there and it was, yeah, you know, that's true. Um, that can rub off on, on certain students. And that's, I think that's less likely to happen when you, it's like a, a real small group, you know, four yep. to eight students. Um, and, and there's yeah. more supervision. It's been Absolutely. pointed out too. It's been pointed out that um, socialization in school is in public schools is unlike any other form. Like you get out of high school and in what other setting for the rest of your life will you only be socializing with people in your specific age group? 
Right, 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 uh, right that right. won't happen. Like you'll go to yeah. work somewhere where there are people that are older and younger, and yeah, and well, whatever. I mean, there's the bullying and fighting and and, yeah. and stuff that goes on in the schools too. But yeah, I mean, look, you you can still socialize with with the other people in in these pods, uh, capitalize on yeah. the positive forms, and there's you can still participate in community sports and other types of activities to socialize with with people yeah. outside of the pod. It's a great point. And we actually do have a number of middle school pods where when we ask the students, you know, what do you like about this? People reference the fact that they're not bullied in the pods, right? Because it's not this large middle school where, um, you know, teachers aren't necessarily always around to kind of catch bullying behavior or kind of other, uh, you know, uh, negative behavior like that. And then also to echo Matt's point, we have a number of pods where, you know, we don't require you to be in a single grade. So we have pods where it's first graders and second graders together or third graders and fifth graders. Um, and once again, I think parents were a little bit hesitant because they're not used to that setup. But so far, parents have been absolutely thrilled with the outcomes because oftentimes um, if the parents have two siblings, maybe they're a grade apart, that's kind of a common um, pairing that we see. So maybe you'll see something like first grade and third grade. If we put them in one classroom, the parents love the fact that the older kids are actually teaching the younger kids uh, different activities because one of, uh, I'd say, to really master something is the ability to teach it, right? Because you have to understand it at such a granular level to actually show other people how to do it. And then the reverse is true as well. You know, the younger kids actually are able to kind of see what the older kids are doing, learn best practices, um, and kind of are exposed to more interesting and deeper material than maybe they would be if they were just surrounded uh, only by their grade. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know um, what what states are you guys currently in? Where do you yeah. guys want to be if you're not there already? And then also, um, how's the competition looking? And and you know what? Uh, what, what I mean, there's yeah. a recent trend where a lot of people are yeah. seeking out these options right now. So I can imagine that yep. there's other people in the space too, and how you're dealing yeah. with that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of competition, honestly, because it is such kind of a new idea, there are not many competitors. We would say that, you know, really kind of where we compete is honestly with uh, public and, and schools that are that are nearby. Um, so always happy for more people to kind of enter the, the space because quite frankly, it's, it's wide open like most things in education these days. In terms of where we're operating, uh, so we're here in New York, which is where we started originally, um, and then also in New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, Virginia, DC, and Florida, um, in the process of expanding to kind of some additional states, um, such as Texas, California, Illinois, but those states are kind of where we're currently operating and have pods up and running. Well, you know, Florida um, Senator Manny Diaz just introduced the bill to restructure all of their voucher programs and other types of school choice programs as education savings accounts, which is the the best right. form of school choice. And yes. now that that way, the money could be used to 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 enroll children in in your micro schools out there. So I think that's a uh, a state that's um, doing a lot of great things on school choice, and they continue to 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 be leading the, the rest of the nation. Arizona's doing pretty well too, but yeah. Florida, you know, they just passed the biggest school choice expansion in U.S. history just last year. So that yeah. it's um, looking in interesting, um, to say the least. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, go ahead, Joe. 
Go ahead. I was just going to say, we're, you know, I, I think as you referenced early, earlier, Corey, uh, there has been, I'd say, pretty widespread action across different states, obviously Florida, as you mentioned. But I think for a lot of legislatures, you know, who have families who have kids, uh, the school choice issue really became personal this past year when most people were left with kind of the option of, you know, remote or nothing. Um, and so I think that it seems like um, we're kind of on a sea change just across the United States in access to these programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the teachers unions almost have overplayed their hands here, their hand here, where, where the, the longer they stay closed, the better for alternative Mm -hmm. uh, systems to the traditional public school system because the longer that families start to get to seek out alternatives to public schools, the more likely they're going to say that I don't want to send my kid back to the traditional public school because I've figured it out through private uh, opportunities such as things like like schoolhouse. So I mean, in a sense, um, you know, it's it's uh, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot mm -hmm. by by keeping the schools closed uh, longer. It's yeah. a weird it's a weird thing to kind of hope for and it's a definitely a weird thing to watch um, happen right it's like everyone can see it from the outside but anyway I, I won't go on on that um, I have a question for you though Joe we got sure. a, a question from someone on Facebook Peggy um, and it speaks to this idea that we've been talking about these programs right where ESAs are available to to in some cases, well, I don't think there are any cases yet where they're available to everybody. I think they're available to certain populations, right? Like the Hope mm -hmm. Scholarship in Florida um, is, and I guess that's a scholarship. It's not really a, um, an ESA. But anyway, some of these programs are, are available to um, specific groups. Uh, one of those groups that often, in fact, that's usually the first program that gets put in is for kids with special needs, right? Mm -hmm. So- yeah. Um, she asked this question. She says, I, I imagine this is even better for kids with special needs. Although, is there a shortage of those professionals? I think it's a good question for you. How do you yeah. have any pods that are focused on that or that just are, you know, what in the education world you would call it? It's a, an inclusion model versus a pullout right. model. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a great question and something that's super important to us at Schoolhouse. We do have um, pods where there are students with documented special education needs and also pods, I think, where parents and teachers maybe suspect that there might be kind of some special education needs in the future. Um, you know, there obviously is a huge demand for that. We haven't had any problem on our end finding um, educators who have those skills. Really, um, oftentimes, it's just kind of specific trainings for certain types of special needs kids that we need to access. Um, but our model is inclusion. So we wouldn't necessarily have kind of a full model just for special ed. We think that there's a benefit. And I think generally, most people would agree at this point that there is a benefit to kind of trying to have kids um, in an inclusion model as much as possible because you know, that is probably kind of the best practice for the real world where most of kind of what you are teaching kids are to kind of have certain responses and strategies and maybe certain tools that they can use to interact, you know, when they kind of graduate and, and move on to their profession. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's something that we're always happy to talk with uh, interested parents about. 
And we have a number of, you know, happy parents um, who are can serve as references for those pods. Cool. Yes, I have a couple more questions. Uh, one is sure. um, uh, obviously people are seeking this out right now because a lot of the public schools aren't open for in person. They want in person. Other people yeah. don't like the factory model of education, or maybe they're seeing on remote learning that the teachers aren't teaching in the way that they like. So they're seeking out alternatives. Um, are some families seeking out uh, schoolhouse and, and these kind of micro schools because of safety reasons? Because, you know, just because they, they think their kids are more likely to get it in a, in a school setting where maybe they're less likely to get it, uh, uh, the virus in a, a smaller setting yeah. for school? Yeah, it's a good question. We do have, I'd say, a number of reasons why people join. One of the major ones right now because of the pandemic is safety. So I think that, especially early on, parents were not necessarily too pleased with how the schools were reacting. Um, you know, especially over the summer and during the spring, a lot of the schools had months to prepare. And when they laid out the reopening plans, a lot of our parents got quite nervous about, you know, this seems like this is too many kids in a classroom. You know, I don't necessarily know that um, it makes sense to go back uh, kind of this often, or um, they didn't really think that they had a great handle on it. So we do have a number of uh, parents and students where the families are quite COVID cautious. Um, so that's kind of, I think, I would say a big driver of a lot of our parents right now. And as far as um, the precautions in the micro schools, is that uh, up to the the guide or teacher? Is it one size yeah. all where, where you guys have a regulation in place where everybody has yeah. Y or Z or is it a little bit of both? Or yeah, like, like most things, we we let the pods uh, kind of often decide for themselves. We have some minimum safety requirements, so we're always pushing, obviously, hand sanitizing, um, always making sure that families outside of the pod are kind of abiding by, you know, just reasonable precautions when it comes to COVID. Um, but outside of that, you know, what a pod looks like in Florida versus what it looks like in New York City is, is quite different, and we think that that often makes sense based on kind of those local conditions. Um, so while we do, you know, strive to make sure all the pods are safe, um, you know, we do let the parents kind of pick what that means for them. And so for those parents and families who are super cautious, you know, we have some pods where that's taking place outdoors year round, even in the Northeast, um, you know, kids are six feet apart, they're masked. And that's because of, that's kind of the parents and teachers choice. That was what they wanted from the beginning. And so we help facilitate and set that up for them. So let's let's talk cost. Um, public schools yeah. in the U.S. spend on average fifteen thousand four hundred twenty-four dollars per child per year. What's the range um, for for uh, schoolhouse? I know you said earlier that you know for for disadvantaged families there are discounts and whatnot. But yeah. What's kind of the average kind of range that that you guys are seeing? Yeah, so average cost for a pod of eight kids is about $14,000. Uh, so we are quite affordable when you compare us to certainly a lot of local private schools. Um, and we are working, uh, as I said before, to make sure that anyone has access to us. So if cost is an issue for anyone listening to this or thinking about Schoolhouse, please feel free to reach out because we do have financial aid options available. And that's kind of throughout the process, we would um, make sure that anyone who has an issue with pain would be covered under that. But 14,000 puts us kind of right in a, a nice um, spot for uh, competing with private schools in many places in Northeast and Florida. 
Um, and for that, you know, you get a full teacher, 25 hours a week, um, who's teaching a very small class size. Um, and honestly, the results are pretty incredible. As I said before, we do have some pods that are covering, you know, double the amount of material in the same time. Um, so parents, you know, although it certainly is um, costly for some families, parents, you know, generally say that it's well worth the cost based on kind of the quality that they're getting in terms of an education. Yeah, and and you know, if you're in a state that has a education savings account, for example, and they could use some of that funding yeah. in addition, and and you said you you know you guys have some type of uh, discounts for if you're a lower income family, for example, yeah. would they be able to use the ESA in addition to that discount in order to attend uh, one of the schools? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have the financial aid and also open into using kind of any type of school choice uh, programs that are local and available for those families. And, you know, as we expand, as I was talking about into other states, always open to kind of making more use of those. And as states like Florida pass kind of more comprehensive school choice programs, we're always looking into and making sure that our families can benefit from those. Another thing that, you know, it's interesting to me in a couple of states that most people don't know about is, you know, California has like a homeschool allotment where if you're enrolled in a virtual charter school, the state gives you like two or three thousand dollars a yeah. year to be able to use for other home based education expenses. So, you know, that yeah. might be a, a, an avenue in California for families who live out there. And then Alaska, not a lot of people live there, but uh, they yeah. do have a, a homeschool allotment as well. Yeah. To where you can use some of the state funding, even though it's not like an education savings account per se it kind of functions in a similar way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and so. there's a few other states I think that have um, like textbook credits and things. I know that Iowa has that for homeschoolers. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say for any listeners, there, there's always kind of different uh, programs. It obviously depends on where you live, but I think more and more programs are being brought on all the time. So always important, I think, to kind of check out what's available locally. That's cool. So. Oh, did you have something, Corey? I always have something, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Your turn. No, I was just, I was just going to ask. Uh, you better go first because I was going to ask Joe if there was anything else he should know, and that's a good wrap-up question. So I'm going to let you go, Corey. Oh yeah, I was get, I was getting towards that too, but I was going to, you know, I was just going to ask. Yeah, what, what for families who are really interested in in this? What the, should yeah. they do right now? What's mm -hmm. the, you know, the first step that they should take? I've already put a link to the to the get schoolhouse website which i'll put in a second again but yeah what do you recommend for families at the moment yeah so if you're interested in uh schoolhouse go to our website www.getschoolhouse.com uh that's for both parents and teachers on the teacher side we're always hiring new and great teachers um and on the parent side we're always in the process of making more pods um, so as I said, you know, we're available um, in most, uh, mostly along the East Coast, but also moving into Texas, California, and Illinois. Um, so happy to set up pods there and kind of continually expanding into new states. So even if we're not in your state yet, I would recommend going, signing up, and we'll notify you when we're opening up nearby and local pods. Um, so that's kind of the, the big step. And then once you sign up, we have counselors who will reach out um, through phone and email and we'll kind of walk you through the entire process. Awesome. So they can uh, touch base with you on your website. Where, where else can they find you, Joe, your, and your company? Yeah, so, um, so if you have any individual questions, uh, you can feel free to email me at joe at getschoolhouse.com. 
uh, on Twitter. My handle is at Joseph J. Connor. Um, and I respond to direct messages there as well. Awesome. Cool. And I just, I just linked to the Twitter for get schoolhouse at least uh, so that people can go follow uh, the organization on Twitter and, and keep and uh, keep in the loop with the, with any updates. That sounds great. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. It's been good. We've got a lot of engagement from people. Obviously, there's interest in uh, in what you're doing and in micro schools generally. So we appreciate your time and uh, thanks for coming on with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and thanks for all the work you do in uh, education and school choice. So keep up the great work. Yeah, thank you thank so you. much, Joe. Yeah, for everybody who uh, has tuned in, thank you so much for checking out another weekly episode of the Educational Freedom Institute podcast with Corey DeAngelis and Matthew Nielsen. And we were joined again by a special guest today, Joe Connor, who's the co-founder of Schoolhouse, uh, an organization who that connects uh, educators with students at micro schools in the United States. So go check out their website, uh, which is in the comments, getschoolhouse.com. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. Super happy to uh, talk to everybody again next week. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org, on Twitter at EF underscore Institute, and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.